0: and we ask for your mercy as we approach your word we, there's so much that we need to understand, there's so much we need to see we ask that by your Holy Spirit we'd be given eyes to see and hearts to understand uh, your written word and how it applies to our lives that by your Holy Spirit you'd lead us to walk with you we ask these things in Jesus' name <clears throat> several things I'd kind of like to address before I even get to the message that I would planned for today, one is that yeah, we are joint heirs with Jesus. And it's not mentioned very often in Scripture, but the but the difference between a joint heir and a co-heir is that joint heir means the whole thing's mine. Co-heir would mean we're splitting it up with all the other brothers and sisters and I got this little chunk that's mine for eternity. No, I got the whole thing. Uh, when I inherited a third of my mom's House That was co-heir We had to uh, I bought my brothers and sisters parts out but Anne Got the whole house with me When I bought that house the whole thing became hers. That's her house We are joint heirs. My brother and sister and I were co-heirs Okay We do have a future in our nation that might not be what we want it to be i would pl- plead with you each to read the book of habakkuk it's only three pages you can handle it honest read what habakkuk says about the coming destruction in israel and <clears throat> what god says about it i should say judah because i think it was judah not israel israel is the northern ten nations judah is the southern two uh, but he pointed out the sin and the collapse of the moral fiber of that nation, and asked God, what are you going to do about this? Why aren't you fixing this? And God says, no, I'm going to do something about it. I'm bringing the Chaldeans, and they're going to dis- defeat and effectively destroy Judah. And he says, you can't do that. They're worse than we are. He says, I know they are. And when they're done, they've got, they'll have gone too far, and I'm going to punish them even worse. But, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And Habakkuk concluded in chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, that though the fig tree shall not blossom, all these things that have to do with the nation of Israel. And he says, though the fig tree shall not blossom, and neither shall be any fruit in the vine, the olive tree shall cast its fruit. There'll be no crop in the field, no flock in the fold, no ox in the stall, and so forth. All these things that are surrounding the health of Israel are going away. He says, "In spite of all these, I he says yet while I rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation." He had made his decision; he was going to find his joy in the person of Christ. I'll joy in the God of my salvation, and his final word on it was that God would make his feet like hind's feet. It's a type of deer; they like high places. He's going to make me surefooted. And he says, "He sets me upon my high places." He's going to place me above. The coming destruction, even if it involves him, he's still above it. Even if he's killed by it, it's still—he's still above it. And finally, he handed this over to the singers that he was connected with, the music makers, and said, "Make a song out of this." He was singing in response to the destruction of his of his nation. So we have a choice about how we respond to the rough. Things that we see coming. And coincidentally, don't you just love these coincidences? Today's title is Refocusing for the Last Days. So, 2 Peter chapter 3. We finished up 2 Peter chapter 2 last week talking about false teachers. Previous week we brushed over the surface of the idea of false teachers and who is and who is not a false teacher. Last week we talked the entire chapter of Second Peter chapter two, talking about false Peter, false teachers and the judgment on false teachers, who is and who is not a false teacher and why that judgment that's in Second Peter chapter two verses twenty nineteen through twenty two, is not about believers. It's about unbelievers. It's about people just like Judas. They were right there with the other 11 apostles. They heard everything they heard. They understood everything they understood, but they didn't believe. They were not believers. They were not born again. There was no transformation from whatever they had been into a sheep, a lamb, uh, the property of God, the child of God. And the last verses we saw, it says that the dog returned to his vomit and the sow that was washed returned to her wallowing in the mire. It did not say a sheep turned back into a pig or a dog. There was no transformation in their lives. They were they were natural people who had gained this knowledge of the Lord without any faith relationship, without salvation. They knew about him. Okay, so that's what we talked about last week, and he swings directly into why he's been teaching these things for the last two epistles, both First and Second Peter. <clears throat> Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both, the first and second, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. We're going to read down through verse 9 and then come back and take it verse by verse. I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. That's talking Old Testament. And of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come, future tense, there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed was with water perished. Does <clears throat> they're willingly ignorant of all these things? They choose to ignore this. <clears throat> Verse seven. But the heavens and earth which are now present day, uh, by the same word, same word that created the original, are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. He's long-suffering, patient. He's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now let's go back. He states... That his purpose in writing both epistles was to stir up our pure hearts. Well, what pure heart have I got? I flat tell you, my old sin nature is not a pure heart. It's 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 not getting any better. It's getting worse. And and God says this going to. He says my old sin nature, according to Ephesians 4:22, says that the old man is being corrupted according to the deceitful lusts. King James just says corrupt, but the Greek is it's a continuous present continuous, and the newer translations correctly uh, treat that as being corrupted. It's, it's an ongoing, rotting process. So when he says he's going to stir up in me my pure mind, the only pure mind I've got is my new nature. And he says he wants to stir that up. <clears throat> and that's our goal here at True Hope, is to stir up. The new nature of each of the believers to desire the word—the word of God. First uh, Peter, he, uh, excuse me, Second Peter chapter two. No, I had it right. First Peter chapter two, verse two. Uh, he says, "As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby." That's what he wants us to do. He wants to stir us up to desire God's word. <clears throat> he says. I want to stir up your pure mind by way of remembrance that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. By the way, in, in God's word here, he, he treats uh, Peter, addresses Paul's teaching as being scripture. So these apostles were in agreement with one another. <clears throat> He says that he wants to stir up the new nature of those who have already been born again, so they desire the sincere milk of the word, as Peter said in his first epistle. And this is how the saints of God, remember how God defined his saints in Psalm 50 verse, excuse me, Psalm, yeah, Psalm 50 verse 5. He says, call unto me my saints, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. We recognize today that that sacrifice is Jesus' blood of the cross. We enter into a covenant relationship with God through that blood. And it's a one sided covenant. He did all the work at the cross, but we have become His by that covenant. And He calls us saints because of that relationship. All it means, it means holy ones, but all it means is that we're His personal property. And it's, this is, His word is the means by which the saints of God grow into the servants and soldiers of God. The ambassadors of christ this is how we grow into doing what he wants us to do and that we're manifested to the world as the sons of god there's going there's going to come a day when god's going to take away our old nature and we'll be known to the whole universe as the sons of god romans chapter 8 verse 23 says that when we get our new bodies the whole universe will recognize us as the sons of god but in romans 7 he says that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Okay, so we we need to recognize that by, excuse me, that's in Romans chapter eight as well, Romans eight fourteen. as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. <clears throat> the way God uses his, the way God's Holy Spirit leads us is through his word. He never leads contrary to God's written word. <clears throat> so if we want to be seen by the world as the sons of god if we want to be functioning as the servants of god and the soldiers of god and the ambassadors of christ and so forth this is how we do it we go to god's word and we apply it to our lives both old testament and new testament so this is our goal we want to give the holy spirit free reign in our lives by being obedient to his written word since that is specifically how god has chosen to lead people through his word the second epistle, he says, <clears throat> I write unto you that you be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the Holy Spirit, excuse me, by the Holy Prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. Paul reminds Peter reminds us that both epistles have the same goal, to stir us up. <clears throat> it has to be the new nature. Romans, excuse me, Ephesians 4, 24 says that the new man is created in righteousness and true holiness as created in the likeness of god after which after god is created in righteousness and true holiness so this new nature it's not the holy spirit the holy spirit is not a created being he's god your new nature is the new you It is a created being, but it's created in the likeness of God in righteousness and true holiness. And I have a problem with that because I don't feel real righteous or real holy. And we tend to go by feelings. What's the problem with feelings? Some of you have heard me say this over and over. Feelings are not an accurate reflection of reality. So I don't feel holy. That doesn't mean that I don't belong to God. I'm his personal property. If I don't feel righteous, it doesn't mean I don't have a right standing before God. I do through Jesus' blood at the cross, okay? There's things that we can feel that are accurate, but there's lots and lots and lots of things that we feel that are not accurate. We need to turn to God's word for facts to oppose those feelings. The old nature still feels like me, but in Romans chapter six, we found out we didn't have to sin. In Romans chapter six, we find out that we're separated from our old nature to the extent that God says you're dead to sin. I don't feel very dead to sin either. I don't have to get dead to sin. God says I already am dead to sin. I'm separated from it. That's what dead means. I'm separated from my old sin nature. God does not see my old sin nature as me anymore. How do I know? Because in Romans chapter 7, verse 17, he says, It is no longer I that do these things. It is sin that dwells in me. That's my old sin nature. God recognizes the difference. We need to recognize that too. Okay. So let's start there. <clears throat> we choose by faith to take God's word on it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says that any man that's in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. Really? I don't feel that way. Oh, well, see, there's that problem with feeling again. I don't feel like everything's been made new. Well, tough. Your feelings are not accurate. But I can tell that something's new because I do desire to walk with God and my old sin nature flat does not want to walk with God. It wants to go its own way. So I know I have a new nature and I have to take it by faith that God says I've been separated from my old sin nature and he no longer sees my old sin nature as me. He sees me as a holy righteous child of God and he's pleased with my stumbling attempts to serve him. And in that freedom that I have as a new, born-again child of God, I want to try every day to walk with him tighter and tighter. Accept by faith the fact of the new birth and the resulting new nature. And I need to learn to feed that new nature and watch it grow strong and stable. And that is what Peter is saying here when he says to stir up in you your pure mind, your new nature. Feed it. Strengthen it. See it start to walk successfully, not stumbling and falling all the time. He says we're to be mindful, to keep in mind, to remember, to focus on the words of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. In short, read your Bible and apply it to your life. So why does he consider this to be so important? Because verse 3 says, knowing this first, there shall come in the last days scoffers. He's talking about the end times, and we're looking at them. Okay, we're coming up on them. I don't know how close we are. I'm not going to worry about that. I can't give you that kind of an answer. Jesus said that we would not know. <clears throat> Why? Because we'd spill the beans and tell everybody. We'd tell people stuff like that. We don't tend to spill the beans and tell people about Jesus. But we'd sure tell them if we knew that, you know, go on the, on the Internet. You'll see everybody they think is the Antichrist. Uh, we like to talk about that kind of stuff. We're afraid to tell people about how they can have eternal life today, but we do. We're bound to tell people, you know, the the world's about to end. <clears throat> He's already told us where to grow through the word. He's already told us where to become partakers of the divine nature. In in first Peter, second Peter one four it says that. By means of the promises, the exceeding great and precious promises in God's Word, that were to become partakers of the divine nature, that God's nature, His holiness, His righteousness, His love is to start leaking out through the broken pottery of our lives that were in vessels of clay. But He is He's making His nature apparent in our lives, and He goes on to say what the end times will hold. And what our response to those end times should be. He says, knowing this first, there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Yeah, they have been saying that for centuries. I had a brother-in-law actually tell me that. He says, Chad, people have been saying that for hundreds of years. Now, he's a believer now, and he would confidently tell you that Jesus is coming back. But at that time, he just said, Chad, they've been saying that for hundreds of years. But now he's a born-again child of God, and he knows Jesus is coming back. But the scoffers have been around since the beginning. There's nothing new about that. The trend is growing stronger, where now the scoffers are very vocal and very public. Nobody's ashamed to stand right up and say the Bible's a myth, that anybody that believes it is a fool, it's fairy tales, it's full of lies, it's full of contradictions. And people are very, very open about saying that kind of stuff, where they used to be a little bit cautious about that at least here in this country, <clears throat> It's becoming socially unacceptable at every level to be a child of God. <clears throat> when the believers confidently af- assert that Jesus will return, the unbelievers are elated because they consider 2,000 years have been plenty of time to prove that we're wrong, that he's not coming back. I say, really, you still think that, huh? I bet you still think the world is flat, too. Well, no, actually, the Bible says in several places that it's round and that it's suspended upon nothing. You know, the the idea that people thought that the world was flat and that it was sitting on something, didn't come from the Bible. It came from pagan religions. The Bible taught that it was round and that God hung it in space, that it's not suspended on anything. Okay. But unbelievers will mock you. And today they deny the creation ever happened. And remember he's talking to Jewish believers here in 1st and 2nd Peter. So they knew about the creation, but he's saying that, that even those that assumed the creation was real said, yeah, but he ain't coming back. You know, nothing's changed in all these centuries. But the people today deny the cre- creation even happened. Some of them have come to start claiming, I hear it more and more commonly they say, well, the, you know, it's not the universe's will. The universe's will? Guess what? All those planets and stars and asteroids and stuff, they haven't got a will. They're an impersonal pile of dust spinning around in space. They don't they don't have any effect on you at all unless they fall on you. Uh, they don't want to deal with a personal God. So they talk about, well, when the universe is ready, I'll do this. And, uh, that's pantheism. That's all it is. It's making everything to be God. And we traditionally recognized that pantheism was a bad thing. And in all the countries where pantheism was the norm, Indonesia, India, a lot of other places, the result in their society was horrible. Life was very cheap, Uh, people were not treated well. Women, particularly, were treated horribly. Uh, Children were seen as just property. Uh, And morals were entirely a relative thing. But Peter says that the day is coming when those sorts of beliefs and values will be all over the world and that collectively the world will insist that it's folly to believe the Bible. They'll also violently oppose those who teach it. <clears throat> so, and we're already seeing signs of that. We, uh, the Bible study, they told us about a, a pastor in Canada that was arrested for uh, holding a church service. Uh, He wasn't arrested for holding the church service. He was arrested because more than the maximum number of people attended, and he didn't stop it. So rather than arrest the people that came, they arrested the pastor that had the service. That's fine. It's just a sign of what we're seeing right here. We have to be aware of these things in advance. As for this, they willingly are ignorant of. They deliberately ignore these things. By the word of God, by God's authority, the word of God, it was spoken into existence. That We saw that in the book of Genesis that the universe was created by the word of God and the earth standing out of water and in the water. He reminds us of this, that God spoke the world into existence. He reminds us the world was covered with water initially and that God raised the dry land out of the water and that he then, by that same authority, destroyed that world by that water, plunged it all under water and drowned them all. There's all kinds of things that we see in, the, in Genesis that are confirmed in the Word that thousands of years later, people discover with science, uh, the breakup of the original supercontinent. I remember when that was first proven, they'd suspected it for about 100 years, maybe more, uh, but it was first proven, the end of the last century, that there used to be one supercontinent and that it broke up. Well. The Bible tells about it. It not only happened, it happened within human memory. And in Genesis 10:25, they named a guy uh, Peleg, which means division, because in his day, the ground split apart and was divided. <clears throat> it says the earth was divided. The word for earth there is the Hebrew word Eretz, and it means just the land. It does not mean the people of the earth. It means the land. It broke up. <clears throat> so God told about it. For centuries, but he takes us forward to the flood. We see that the whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. In verse six, and we know we see the story of that destruction in Genesis, but we also see the story in geology because on the peaks of the highest mountains, the highest mountain in our country is Mount McKinley. Uh, we call it Denali now. I think I think they're in denial. No, it's Denali. Oh well. Uh, Anyway, the, at the top of that mountain, there are seashells in the rocks. How would they get up there? Well, because it used to be on the bottom of the ocean. What was it doing there? Well, because the whole world was on the bottom of the ocean for a while, for a year and 17 days. And so the whole world has this miles-thick pile of sediment everywhere, and it's full of the shells and bones of dead things which tells the story that paleontologists keep on trying to unravel, which they say took millions of years for all this sediment to trap all these dead things. Okay, I remember hearing that all my life. <clears throat> I remember hearing that the Grand Canyon took millions of years for the Colorado River to dig it out, and even then, when I looked at that canyon, I thought, and I looked at that little bitty Colorado River, I thought there's no way in the world this little tiny river dug this huge, wide, deep canyon. I don't know what happened here, but it wasn't that. Well, now they admit that there was this big pile of water up in northern America, uh, covered Montana and all of Canada, miles deep in water under uh, what was left after the last ice age, I guess. And when that glacial dam broke, all that water came gushing out, and it dug the Grand Canyon in a matter of days, and the Dry Falls Park, if you go up in Washington, on eastern Washington, dug that. You know, and all these other big canyons and stuff were dug when one big lake, they named it even, it's called Lake Missoula. You can look it up online. When that thing broke and dug out all these places, it left all these lakes that, are, that don't have any outlets. Great Salt Lake, uh, Walker Lake, Honeyman Lake, all these lakes in Nevada that don't have any outlet. That's because they were dug by this big flood. And when it went away, there was no rivers coming out of there. Because they're too deep, and so now they're all alkali and salt lakes. <clears throat> Amazing how God's word gets proven by science. Once science has is slapped in the face with it and has to admit it. Hey, some of you remember this this mountain over here that popped a few years ago, knocked off a cubic mile out of the top of it and buried a place called Spirit Lake. And when the Tootle River finally broke through that volcanic ash dam and in a matter of week or two it dug what's now called the tootle river canyon down through layers of rock the geologists that came flooding in to look at this thing all exclaimed you know if we didn't know this happened two weeks ago we'd have sworn that took millions of years to cut all these layers of rock hey guys are you listening to what you're saying So for once, you got to see it happen, and you said, yeah, if we didn't see it happen, we would've sworn it took millions of years. So the fact that you didn't get to see the flood happen, now you're gonna swear it took millions of years? This one would've proved you a liar. What about the other one? See, the fact is, we're reading the geologic clock wrong. You can look at that clock two ways. I can look at that flood. Well, here's a a perfect example, I love it. Uh, In Cornwall, England, a number of years ago, Uh, Guys digging in a quarry found a fossil and they stopped and called in the paleontologists so they dug up this fossil whale. Okay, that's cool. But the problem was the fossil whale was vertical. It was standing on its tail through all these millions of years of sediment. Oh, my goodness. All right, well, that gives me three possibilities. One is that the whale died and fell tail first into a, a chasm in the bottom of the ocean was subsequently filled up with silt around it and then turned into a fossil. Well, the first problem with that is that dead whales float. That's why you see videos of sharks feeding on a floating dead whale. They bloat, they rot, they float, and they're fat, and they float, and the sharks eat them. This one was vertical on the bottom, upright. The second problem with that is that there was no separating layer of sediment that went around the whale and then all your other sediment, sedimentary layers around it. No, all, every sedimentary layer was connected with the whale and went through the fossil. Hmm. Okay, so that one wasn't what happened. It was part of all these millions of years of sedimentary strata. All right, so the second possibility would be that there was, let's say, a worldwide flood and there was just underwater waves and landslides and piles of silt going everywhere. The whale was killed in that flood, buried while everything was still fresh and just blowing around, tail first in these layers of sediment that were being rapidly laid down by relative density and particle size because that's how things settle out. You can take a jar of mud and shake it up with water and let it sit and you'll see it layer out by particle size and by relative density, the rocks on the bottom and so forth. Uh, but see, we can't believe that, because then people, that would prove the Bible was true, and we can't have people actually believe in that kind of stuff. So the world isn't going to accept that idea. So the third idea would be the possibility this whale just stood on its tail for millions of years and patiently waited while all the sediment filled up around it. And that would be one patient whale to hang there motionless for millions of years while the sediment filled up around him. That one doesn't really fit either, does it? Okay, so we're kind of drawn to the second possibility that maybe God's word is true. And that all those layers of sediment got laid down very, very rapidly and we've been reading the geologic clock wrong. Another one, if you take a tour through any of these limestone caves where they've got a sidewalk and a railing so it's safe, and they walk you along and solemnly tell you that it took millions of years for these stalactites from the ceiling and stalagmites from the ground to build up. And then while they're telling you all that, you notice that there's stalagmites on the sidewalk and stalactites hanging from the railing. Must be a really old sidewalk, huh? Or maybe it doesn't actually take millions of years. It depends on minerally active, chemically active water dripping off of something and it'll build up immediately. And if there's a lot of it dripping, then it builds up rapidly. And if it quits dripping, then it looks like it took millions of years to make that huge pile there. No, it just did that and then quit dripping. There's not very much dripping now. But at one time there was a lot, see. We're reading the clock wrong. That's where the problem is. How do we tell time? Well, we need to learn to read the clock right. And one way to do that is to start with what God says about that clock. So seeing that the world is going that way, is reading the clock wrong, is interpreting everything around them wrong, and deliberately, willingly ignorant of God's word, then what are we going to do? What should we expect for the future? Verse 7 changes the picture we're no longer talking about the old world being destroyed it says but the heavens and earth which are now by the same word by the same authority the same word that created the original creation by the same word are being held being kept in store reserved unto fire for the day of judgment and perdition perdition means eternally lost and perdition of ungodly men now i've watched you know, videos of huge forest fires. Actually, we drove through a forest fire when I was a child. I didn't realize we were in danger. We had fire on both sides of us and logs going down and firemen running back and forth across the road. Mom and dad were driving and I was just a little kid looking from the back seat going, whoa. And I didn't realize we were in terrible danger. Uh, But all of us as adults recognize that wildfire, whether in forests or in prairies, is a horrible danger. Consider the kind of fire he's talking about here because he's not talking about that kind. Okay, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. You can turn there if you want. Hold your finger here in 2 Peter. I promise we're coming back. Colossians, which is just a little bit off to your left. <clears throat> it's before 1 Thessalonians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. <clears throat> He's talking about Jesus, and he says, and he, Jesus, is before all things, meaning he's in terms of importance and so forth, and by him, all things, the King James says, consist. If you have a newer translation, I bet my bottom dollar, it says hold together. Why? Because that's what it means. When it says that by that same word, in uh, back to Second Peter now, verse seven, it says, "By the same word they are kept in store, reserved unto fire." Okay, when when science talks about subatomic molecule or molecule subatomic particles, uh, when it talks about protons and neutrons and electrons and all these other things. We know that the protons have a positive charge, the neutrons don't have any charge, the electrons have a negative charge and I can understand why protons and electrons would be attracted to one another because opposites attract but neutrons don't have any charge so they're kind of what are you what are you guys doing in there and the protons and neutrons are what are jammed together in the in the core the the nucleus of every atom why is it that the protons can stay in close proximity at all why don't they just repel one another and blow apart because there's so much repulsion there. They ought to. The entire world ought to be impossible. Well, I don't have any good answer for that from a physicist's point of view. But from a biblicalist's point of view, First uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 says that he's the one holding it all together. So what happens if he lets go? Every atom in the universe would, would disassociate into subatomic particles. You'd have the biggest atomic explosion possible because see the guys the big bang theory that's right it's just they got it on the wrong end of history it's going out with the big bang in fact skip down to verse 10 it says the day of the lord will come as a thief in the night we'll talk about that too in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up That's that kind of a fire There is no escaping. You're not going to drive out of this one. You're not going to get down to the creek and hold your breath, get underwater. No, it's going away. The whole thing, the water, everything is going to go away in an atomic explosion. Not caused by man, caused by God. Jesus says he's going to let go. He's the one holding it together, and he's the one holding it, reserving it for the destruction by fire. I'd like to point out another important point. The last six words there it says that it's for the judgment and perdition eternal loss of ungodly men are there times when a judgment on a nation affects godly people as well yeah there's times when a a nation goes bad enough that god brings in destruction and godly people die in the mix too we're not immune to that you know if there's a a bomb blast the, the christians don't miraculously come out the other side as a rule don't come out the other side unscathed. They die in that blast. The, the Christians that were in the, the Twin Towers when they went down, they died. Okay? Some of them got out, sure. But it's always by God's grace when the when the godly are spared, or even when the ungodly are spared. In this case, this judgment will only affect the ungodly. So when's it going to happen? That's what we need to talk about. <clears throat> if I look at Romans chapter, excuse me, Romans, if I look at Revelation chapter 20, I see that this world is going to end immediately after what's called the millennial kingdom age, a thousand year kingdom, Jesus ruling and reigning here on earth. A lot of the Old Testament prophets spent a lot of time talking about that period of grace on earth where Jesus is ruling from Jerusalem and the whole world is completely at peace. That's the time that it says that the lion will eat straw like a like a cow, and that the, the leopard will lie down with the kid and so forth, and that a child can put its hand down the, the, it says cockatrice, it means like a cobra, a viper, uh, den with no harm. That the, that it says that those snakes will go back to eating dirt. Well, that's what it said in Genesis, because that was part of the curse, the snakes were gonna be eating dirt. All snakes today are predators, all of them. There's no vegetarian snakes there's vegetarian turtles there's vegetarian lizards there are no vegetarian snakes snakes are all predators they're going to go back to eating dirt like a worm god says so when during that thousand years okay that's part of the day of the lord but in revelation chapter 20 it encapsulates the whole day of the lord we, well kind of revelation encapsulates the whole day of the lord because the day of the Lord begins with the rapture of the church. That's where the thief in the night part comes. We get snatched away without warning. The world wakes up and something's missing. No problem. It was just those crazy Christians. Okay, I told you about the bumper sticker that I saw that said, Come the rapture, we'll have the whole place to ourselves. Good luck with that lady. She had a whole bunch of other bumper stickers too, but that's the one that stood out. It was right in the middle. <clears throat> Okay. That's what they think. That's the beginning of the day of the Lord. And over in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter five, we see what the rest of it looks like. But in Revelation 20, it says that that at the end of the tribulation, when Jesus comes back in Revelation 19, at the end of the tribulation, Satan is chained up for a thousand years, and this kingdom runs without any intervention from Satan for a thousand years with Jesus reigning on earth from Jerusalem. And then at the end of that 1,000 years, he says that the the whole earth and heaven are fled away from this great white throne that appeared in the sky. There was a a final rebellion that was put down by God the Father. But then it says that the heavens and earth flee away, and there's this great white throne appears. Where would the heaven and earth go? Well, we just read about it. The heaven and earth are destroyed at that point, and the whole of creation is standing before this great white throne judgment who is there the ungodly where are the godly they're with jesus in that throne how do i know is jesus on the throne because john five twenty two, jesus said the father judges no man the only the the son he's committed all judgment unto the son that all may honor the son even as they honor the father verse 23 says he that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father who sent him. So the people that claim to be godly but don't see Jesus as God in the flesh, they don't see Jesus as deity, they're not believers. They're not honoring the Father either. God says so. Jesus said so. John five twenty two through 24. So, we're looking forward to a coming judgment, and we we know that's going to happen. We know that that we're going to be with him and that the whole world is going to be judged, the ungodly are going to be judged by him, that this world is going to be destroyed. That's all in Revelation 20. And that their ultimate end, it says that death and Hades, the the Greek word is Hades there, will be cast into the lake of fire. That's the final judgment and not a single believer is going there. There is no chance for you to go there. You're already with Jesus. In God's mind, you're already seated in the heavenlies. He says so. Okay. So how do we respond well we tend to think hunker down and wait it's all coming it's going to come to pass but god says that we're here to to reach out to those around us he says that to him a thousand days is like a thousand years like a day and a day is like a thousand years time is not relevant for him it is for us not him he's not slack concerning his promise he's not failing to meet his promises or to keep his word he's waiting To see to it that as many people as possible are saved. And it doesn't say he's patient toward them. It says he's patient toward us. Why? Because he gave to us the job of being ambassadors. He gave us the job of reconciliation. He gave us the job of taking the gospel to the world around us. And if you want to see your friends and relatives and neighbors and so forth saved, then You need to get on it and tell them about jesus tell them they can have eternal life today they don't have to wait till they die to find out okay there's people in each of our lives for for whom we may be the only light in their dark world how are you shining that light are you angling it so they can see jesus or is it just flashes of inconsistent life light in an unstable walk with god if you're walking an unstable walk with god then what they may see is a flash of light over here and then kind of dark for a while and then a flash of light again huh well something's going on there but they got no idea what they can't see by that light it's not dependable if you were a pilot on a dark night and you're coming into an airfield and just as you're going in the tower radios you and say just so you know uh, those runway lights they're actually flashlights." Uh, duct-taped onto the back of a bunch of box turtles and they're free to wander any place on the airfield. I'd be looking for another airfield if I had enough gas to get there because those lights are undependable. They're not they're not gonna get in a straight line and show me the real runway. Those lights could be wandering any place those turtles feel like going. You know anybody that did that would be totally crazy. You'd be asking to kill people. But that's how we look to the world. We're just wandering lights that sometimes are lighting, sometimes they're not. Sometimes we're going in the wrong direction. Sometimes we're going in the right direction. And the only way we're going to stabilize our life, stabilize our walk with God, is to get into his word and start applying it on a consistent basis. We need to take this seriously and realize how important our testimony is to the people with whom we live and work. Because I I can guarantee there's somebody in your life for whom you are the only light in their darkness. Don't turn out the light. Don't don't shut off the, the runway lights when they're trying to land. Okay, We need to take this seriously. We need to walk by faith. We need to hold forth the word of truth. We're going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to have communion together. Remember that our communion is our fellowship in the person of Christ and our fellowship in the work of world evangelism. Lord Jesus, we ask you to fix our fading vision on your face. Teach us to reflect the light of your love and truth in the deepening darkness of this world. Raise us up as your saints. Allow us to serve you faithfully. Allow us to be the men and women of God you've called us to be. Allow us to be your ambassadors. We ask this in Jesus' name.